If you have your Bibles, let's head to Second Chronicles, and uh, we'll pick it up in chapter six as we, uh, gosh, come to maybe one of the pinnacles of uh, his the history of Israel. Solomon uh, has completed the temple in chapter six, and or in chapter, yeah, chapter six. Did I say, tell you five and six. So he's going to give his prayer dedication, and uh, and he's also going to show the the uh, I think the challenge for us when we um, when we look on the pages of scripture, especially through the Old Testament, and we see what I what I tend to remark on as uh, extravagant worship when the when the children of Israel are doing these just incredible acts of of uh, sacrifice. And in the midst of those sacrifices that they're making, there's no um, attitude, at least on the page of Scripture, of complaining or whining or what do I got to do or why do I have to do this for the Lord. It's just an eruption from their soul over the value that they have in God. Maybe you guys have experienced, I know I have experienced in my life, uh, struggling with sin, right? You know, the uh, Bible tells us that uh, we are to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us and run with endurance the race that God has laid out before us. And there seems to be, in Scripture, for each person, through people throughout history, a uh, a struggle with maybe a particular sin or a particular issue in their life. And they're this constant struggle, trying to overcome, trying to to find the the key to victory over that uh, over that issue in our life. Now, if we come from a position of being found in Christ, in other words, we come from a position where we have placed our faith in Him. We're we're pot committed. We're all in for the Lord. I think the solution to those sins and those struggles in our walk and the the uh, ability to enter into that kind of an attitude of spontaneous praise is a lot closer than you think. You see, those things erupt out of that which you place value into. The key to victory over those sins is that you value God more then whatever it is that sin is promising you. Momentary pleasure, um, I don't know. Whatever that promise is of the sin, that you hold to the promise that God's made to you more than the promise of the sin. Well, think about it. We see it in Hebrews, don't we? When we, when we look at the hall of faith and we talk about Moses, and the scripture tells that Moses... He weighed the difference, right, between the passing pleasures of sin and living with his own people. Could have lived in the in Pharaoh's palace, right? Cush. Or he could live with his people, not so cush. But he chose rather to suffer affliction for the moment over the passing pleasures of sin that he might cling to the promise he valued greater, the promise that God had given him. The promise of the deliverer. The promise of future salvation. 
And I think for us, for the, for the children of Israel, this is, is to me both a high point and the beginning of a journey to the low point. For so many years, their goal has been to achieve this temple, to build it. And we're going to see the peak of that tonight when God moves into it and the incredible things that take place as the glory of God comes upon the temple. But then what happens from that point forward? See, they had this focus on a, on a goal. And we see it a lot. We see it a lot in maybe in our lives or in churches today. We have a, a specific focus on a goal. Sometimes even, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the things, if there were any word of warning for, for our missionary families who are preparing to go to Scotland and to Romania, you put so much effort and so much work into preparation and to getting everything put together. And then when that day finally comes... And you go. <laughs> Sometimes we, we forget what we were doing all that for in the first place. The goal became the focus rather than the Lord and the one whom we're serving. And the same here. We overcome that power of sin in our life when we value God and His promises more than whatever it is that the sin is laid at the door. But Solomon, he's been focused on building the temple. He's getting it all done. It's going to be a spiritual high. How many times have we experienced spiritual high? Boom, man, God meets us on the mountaintop. Crazy things happen. We're just so stoked and excited about what God's done and what God's shown us. The ladies coming back from the, from the retreat or guys from coming back from retreat last year. You're coming back just super stoked about what God's done. We all talk about it, don't we? What's waiting for us at the bottom of the mountain? What's waiting for us at the bottom of the mountain is the same thing that was waiting for us at the top. Just our focus changes. We head to the top of the mountain expecting to receive from the Lord something incredible. And what do we discover? He's there. But He's here too. He didn't go anywhere. We have to value the promises of God for now and through into the future more than whatever else is going on. Whatever else is happening, it's that focus on God's promises. Look at chapter 5, and we see as it all comes to culmination. Chapter 5, verse 1, So all the work that Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and all the furnishings, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of God. And remember I told you the kind of the mindset in the ancient world was the temple of whatever deity was over a particular group or city was the bank. That's where people kept their treasures. That's where their valuables were kept. Remember, David had set aside a lot of things. He said, this is all for the temple. So all that gold, all that silver, whatever gold they might uh, gain in any battles, they're not going to have any during the reign of Solomon, but in the future, that's where it would go. If they're conquered by another king, the first place he's going to raid is the temple. That's where the gold is. That's where the silver is. That's where everything that they held precious was stored. And when I think about that, and I think about them putting all the stuff, all their treasures 
in the treasuries. To me, it, it begs the question of me, where is my treasure? What did Jesus say? Wherever your heart is, that's where your treasure will be also. So we get it backwards sometimes today. At least they put all their valuables in the temple. Sometimes uh, um, the, the, the temple's an afterthought compared to some of our, or can be, compared to some of our valuables. Where's my heart? Where's my treasure? That comes back to what we talked about at the beginning. I gotta value Christ. He's gotta have that preeminent place in my life, the highest value. That was good that the temple resembled that or, or represented that for them. But then it needed to continue forward from that point. For us, the same way, it's good that our treasures are laid up in Christ and not laid up here. All the stuff you got here is going to break. Anybody doubt that? Somebody find a car yet that doesn't break down? Oh, yeah, sure, a brand new one. Okay, just keep it a while. I promise they break. I promise that somebody in the parking lot will park next to you and ding your door. You want to bet me? If you doubt it, just let me park it for you. I'll take care of it. All things, all that stuff deteriorates. The one thing that does not lose value is the Lord. It says in verse 2, Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel in Jerusalem, that they might bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord up from the city of David, which is in Zion. Now I want you guys to picture, um, if the if, let's say the stage right here, this is the Temple Mount. It's flat. And the Temple Mount is flat. And the temple's built roughly in the middle of that space with the doors of the temple facing straight out the eastern gate. So the eastern gate, the golden gate, that would have been the primary entrance into coming straight doors all lining up toward the temple. The That, it looks out the eastern gate, goes down a, a hill into what we call the Kidron Valley. You guys have heard that name before, right? That Kidron Valley goes all the way around the city. If you put Jerusalem on a hill, Kidron goes, there's like a valley all the way around the city, almost like a moat. It's just a natural runoff. Kidron goes this way. When it, when it reaches the edge of the city of David, the Valley of Hinnom. You guys have heard of the Valley of Hinnom? Gehenna, Jesus used it as an example of hell. It's where they burned all their garbage, where they used to sacrifice children. That's in the valley on this side. So if this is the Temple Mount, and we're looking at the Temple Mount, depending on which side of, of Israel we're standing, let's say we're standing on the Mount of Olives, okay? And we're looking, here's the Temple, there's the Eastern Gate, the City of David's right over there. As the hill goes down, the City of David is one of the early settlements of Jerusalem. And in the City of David, they had set up, David had set up a tabernacle where they housed the Ark of the Covenant. You remember how they brought the Ark of the Covenant in? The extravagant worship that was given when the Ark of the Covenant was coming in? Some say uh, as much as every seven steps that they took, or every six steps they'd offer the uh, sacrifice, and then six more offer sacrifice, six more as they brought the, the Ark of the Covenant in, and they set it down there. Now the temple's built, and Solomon says it's time to get the Ark. The Ark is representative of the... Of the um, presence of God 
But in the temple, the ark is a symbol of the footstool. So if you can kind of picture in your mind, here we are, we're looking at the Holy of Holies. We got these two angels, remember the cherubim facing each other, wings touching uh, together and touching the walls behind them. These huge angels. A lot of people would picture those wings where the wings touch as the seat of a throne. The seat of the throne, and right below the seat of the throne went the ark. The ark of the covenant set there, the the mercy seat. Scripture, there's actually scripture that talks about the the mercy seat being the the footstool. It's almost as though the presence of God would sit there. This this huge entity. Remember, 45 foot tall is how tall the 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 holy of holies is. And so you've got a lot of space above you. And so you have this incredible picture. The Ark of the Covenant is coming in. And whenever we look at the Ark of the Covenant, two things. The presence of God and the failure of men. That's what the Ark represents. The Ark uh, is a picture of Christ. How is it a picture of Christ? What's it made out of? Do you guys remember? Acacia wood. Or shittim wood. Depending on whether you have uh, King James or or New King James or NIV, it doesn't matter, it's the same tree. The idea of acacia wood or shittim wood is the same. It was a a really tough, strong, resilient wood that would not deteriorate. So it was often used for things like this that would last a long time. It doesn't rot. It's tough. It grew in the desert where there's not a lot of plants. So they take this acacia wood. Most commentators would agree that the tree used in the desert region for the Romans to crucify would be the same tree. It's that desert tree, the shittim or the, the acacia. So, so this is used to, to, to be the cross. So you have a symbolism right there, the, the cross and the wood. But that wood also speaks of humanity. It's living, right? Humanity. So it speaks of humanity. Well, you take and you form this box like a rectangle. And they make this box. And once the box is all put together with the acacia wood, they overlay it with gold. Gold always throughout Scripture speaks of deity. So if the wood speaks of humanity, looks to the cross, the suffering of Christ, then the gold is His deity. It's a picture of the God-man. Why do I say it's a picture of Christ? Jack, you said it's the presence of God and the failure of men. Is there another way to look at that? The presence of God is Jesus Christ and the failure of men? Well, last I checked, we did nail Him to the cross. Just another of the many ways we fail to measure up to the standard of God. But remember, it's a box. It's a box. That's the ark. It's a box. Something was in the box, right? We remember what was in the box. The, the, we have the law, right? The two tablets of the law. We have the Aaron's rod that budded, according to Hebrews, and a, a, a pot of manna. You guys remember manna? Manna, when they ate manna in the wilderness? They kept a pot of it. it. I don't know. At some point, it's not there anymore. In fact, in the description here, we don't see it. But what do all those things represent? The law. What's the first thing we know about the law? What happened the first day that the law was given? We broke it. 
Okay, so so law can speak of our our rebellion or certainly our our inability to measure up to God's standard, right? Where's that put in the box? Who's the box? Christ. So the failure of man is put in Christ. All covered up, right? Was the manna? The manna. God never called it manna. God always called it bread from heaven. Go gather that bread from heaven. What did Jesus say? The Father gave you bread from heaven in the wilderness, but I am the true bread from heaven. I am the bread of life. But man called it manna. Manna means, what's this? It kind of speaks of man's inability to see the value in Christ. He came to his own and his own what? Received him not, right? They failed to see the value in Christ. Another way mankind fails. Where is it placed? In the box. The third part, Aaron's rod that budded. Why did that whole issue happen? Well, a bunch of guys stood up and said, why should Aaron be in charge? We all think we should be in charge. We don't want to listen to him anymore. So they came with an attitude of rebellion to the Lord, and the Lord said, everybody bring your rod, put it in the in the middle, the uh, in the tabernacle, the one that buds is the one I choose. Aaron's rod budded. Was God saying, he's my chosen leader. He's the high priest. He's the line through which the priesthood would come. Again, speaking of man's rebellion, where was it placed? In the box. You see, all the failure, all the ways men failed was kept in the box in the body and blood of Christ it's the same picture what was it covered with it's covered with something in the Greek called the hilasterion or propitiation or mercy seat so the top is this mercy seat which was a hammered work Pure gold. Not like the box. Pure gold. Hammered work. A beaten work. And it covered the failures of man. So all the failures of mankind were kept in Christ, covered by the mercy of God. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is our propitiation. You remember that verse? It's the same word. It's the same as saying He is our mercy seat. What was the picture of the mercy seat? It covered all the failures so God can't see him anymore. Are you with me? This is the Ark of the Covenant. The presence of God. The failure of man. All, all accomplished. Covered by Christ. It's, all, it's that picture of Jesus come. And so they, they're bringing him in. They're bringing him in. And I think if, if we're there, and if you have some kind of understanding of what all that symbolism is, you can begin to understand the incredible value that they put on it. The incredible value that they put on the ark. Listen, all the men of Israel assembled with the king at the feast, which is in the seventh month. That's the month of of Tishri. It's a feast of tabernacles. Uh, Late September, early October. Kind of where we find ourselves. Well, we're probably past it, but around this time of year, the Feast of Tabernacles. And as they're, they're gathered at the Feast of Tabernacles, every man, 
was supposed to come back to Jerusalem to worship. So what a perfect time, right? When you have everybody gathered together to be able to to anoint the the temple and put the ark inside and say, here we go, we're ready for the temple to do its thing. So all the elders of Israel came and the Levites took up the ark. Now remember when David moved it the first time, he did it wrong, right? He put it on a cart. How many, is there? is there a... Wrong way to do a right thing. Is it possible to do a right thing the wrong way? I think so. I think we do things the way God wants us to do things. I think we, we do good things the way God wants us to do good things. How do we, how do we know the difference? Well, then we've got to spend time with Him, right? And hear from Him and receive from Him. And, and for them, the, the way to do this was written out in the Word, right? Solomon learned from his father and, and he had the Levites move the ark. Not some new cart. It says they brought up the ark of the tabernacle of meeting and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him before the ark. Listen to this. Were sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. That's another place. I got written next to it, extravagant worship. It spoke of the value they they put in the presence of God. The value that they placed on being where God was and, and, and being a part of what God was doing. It was had so much value. I believe, I can't prove this, but I believe they did the same thing David did. I think they took six steps and had a, a, an offering. And six steps and had another one. And six steps and had another one. All the way from the city of David, which is not a huge journey by any means. Maybe, I don't know, a few hundred yards at the most. So, as they are bringing it up, this main road coming up to the Temple Mount and into the Temple. But you see, they're not making this offering and they're not going, oh, what do I got to do for God now? They're stoked. They're excited about the presence of God. They're excited about the house of God. They're excited about God's forgiveness. They're excited about all of those things. And it just comes forth. It comes out. It pours out of their life. I think a lot of times, we think a lot about how we can fix everything out here around us. There's lots of issues in the world, isn't there? Even in our own town, lots of issues. There's poor people, there's hungry people, there's people that are homeless, there's things that need addressed. I mean, Matthew chapter 25, Jesus said that we're supposed to clothe the naked and visit those who are in prison. He told us that that we're supposed to visit the sick, and right? There's a lot of things. And, and so, but those things, we also understand that Jesus told Judas that the poor you have with you always. So is there a solution for poverty? I don't know that there is. But we can get so focused out here. And those are all good things. Would you agree with me? All those things, things that need done, there's, there's issues. There's stuff that needs done. It needs, it needs put together. But that can take the place of what's supposed to matter most, can it? Just think about it for a minute. And while you're thinking about it, just hold your finger here because we'll be right back. And let's go 
in a time machine to the future. And if we go to the very last book of the Bible, if we come to the very last book in the second chapter, we come to a probably one of my favorite sections of Scripture. It's called the Seven Letters to the Seven Churches. It's a Revelation chapter 2 is where it begins. And the seven letters to the seven churches are a dictation John takes from Jesus. This is Jesus' report card for those churches. And really for the church in general. Listen to what he said. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I won't take a lot of time. The, the angel is the pastor of the church. The seven stars in his right hand means that God is ultimately in control of the leadership within the church. And he walks in the midst of the seven gold lampstands. That means he's the one who tends and cares for the churches. He's in the midst of them all. Caring for them, helping them. He's there. This is what he says in verse 2. I know your works. Look at them all. Your labor. That is a word that means to the point of exhaustion. A lot of things are happening. Are you with me? A lot of stuff is happening. Your patience. Oh, they're a patient group. That's one of the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Where do we come to? Long-suffering. What's long-suffering? Patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness. We, we see it in, in uh, Galatians chapter 5. That you cannot bear with those who are evil. Well, listen, Paul told us in the book of Romans that we're supposed to have that. That we're not supposed to to uh, uh, glorify things that are evil. That, but we're, we're not to um, encourage those things. And here they're doing that. And you have tested those who say they're apostles and are not. They, they know the difference between a true teacher and a false teacher. And, and you found them to be liars. And you have persevered. Wow, they're enduring. They have endurance. And you have patience and you have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. They are doing a lot of good stuff. Lots of good things are happening. And it would all be great except for verse 4. Because verse 4 says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have, what's the word? Left. It ain't lost. It's left. You have left what? Your first love. You left your first love. What we got? A lot of things are happening. And a lot of things are going on. And there's a lot of needs. And we focus this way. And it is possible to leave the relationship we have this way. For focus out here. On good things. God didn't say they were bad things. He said, I have this commendation for you. You're doing good stuff out here. He didn't say not to do that. He said, the problem is, this part's broke. And if this part is broke, if this part isn't right, me and the Lord, if that's not right, then it can't be right out here. Let me put it to you another way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I have not love, it what? Profits me nothing. Though I have all faith, 
And I can say to this mountain, be removed. I can lift it by my faith and cast it to the ocean. Which is a pretty incredible feat, right? If I have not love, it profits me nothing. He said, you have left your first primary. You left your primary love. What I see when we look back in in Second Chronicles, you see the... When I see extravagant worship, I see a picture of how much you love something. Right? For example, if once upon a time, <laughs> I had the coolest Harley ever. I did. But I had the coolest Harley ever. That thing had so much chrome on it. I don't know if you guys ever remember it. I got pictures. I'll be happy to show you. But the, <clears throat> it had so much chrome on it, I could blind you. And if I didn't blind you going down the road, all I had to do was give it a little gas. I had straight drag pipes. I could pop your eardrums if you were anywhere close to the exhaust on that bike. I had 21-inch ape hangers. That means the bars were way up here. I had to grab them big, way up at high. It was a low rider frame, so I sit low. Oh, and I, I would get up and I'd look at it. And I'd think, oh, it's a little dusty or it's a little dirty. So, so I'd go and I'd grab wax and I'd grab stuff and I'd just shine. Man, that thing, whoo, it just glittered. It just glittered. But now I have a truck. I have not washed that truck in three years. Which one did I love more? So when we, when we make that correlation from our relationship with the Lord, if I, if I value love, if that first primary love is there for the Lord, how does, that, how does that emanate out of my life? Well, I think one of the ways it emanates out is extravagant worship. It's, it's not a big deal because it's for the Lord. I mean, it's, it's for Him. I remember it was a Wednesday. I stood here when I still had a bike and I said, you know what? If God wants that bike, he can have it. He took it. Occasionally I miss it. I won't lie. But I'd rather have the Lord than that bike. I wouldn't trade him that for him. No way. No way. There is such intrinsic value in the Lord and when we know him that's why it's so important that we read that we learn that we study that we see the grace of God on the page of the scripture because what that does is is instill in our life and instill in our heart a love a desire to be expressed of the value that we have in God every six steps to make an offering man that's a hassle unless you really love something you ever shine the chrome on a spoke wheel? There's like 10,000 spokes on that thing. But I'd sit there because it held value to me. How much more value ought the Lord to hold in us? And then the labor which we do for Him 
should not be in vain, right? Because it's a response out of love to the Lord, a response toward the Lord for what He does. They could not even count the, the sheep or the oxen that were sacrificed. That's a big number. When Solomon doesn't count it, you remember all the numbers we read in the last two chapters? He wasn't shy about numbers. So it was a big number. Whatever it was, it was a big number. Then look, verse 7. Then the priest brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place, to the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. So you just see them wings coming over as the, as the cherubim are bent over, and they're beneath them as they look in a posture of worship as well toward the ark of the covenant. Their, their wings perhaps being an example of a seat of a throne. And then it says the poles extended. So at the end of the poles of the ark could be seen from the holy place. You remember that the temple's divided into two parts. The holy of holies, perfect square. Then the other two thirds of the building was the holy place. That's where the menorahs were, the table of showbread, the golden censer where they would offer the prayers up. And then a veil. And behind the veil, the ark, while sticking out of the veil, visible from the holy place, were the, those poles. The poles used to carry the ark of the covenant. Well, nothing was in the ark, listen, except two tablets which Moses put there at Horeb, when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they had come out of Egypt. So, what we read in Hebrews tells us what was there early. You know, the the golden censer of manna, the rod that budded. But at this point, when it's placed in the temple, the only thing in it was the law. I reckon that's because that pretty much does all that needs to be done anyway. In the tabernacle, there was discussion that those other things would have been laid down in front of it. Um, We don't know. All we know is at this point, The only thing that's there is the law inside. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the most holy place for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without keeping to their divisions. That means, remember there were 24 courses of the priesthood that David made? Well, nobody wanted to take this day off. So they were all there. (laughs) And they wanted to be there for, for the dedication of the temple. And the Levites who were singers, you remember these guys, right? Uh, Asaph, Haman, and Jeduthun. Remember? Uh, uh, they had their whole families. Everybody was a part of the worship. And their sons and their brethren stood at the east end of the altar, clothed in white linen, having cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps, and with them 120 priests sounding with trumpets. You ever heard 120 trumpets? Hard to miss it. Now, I'd love to tell you which trumpets these were, but I didn't check it out. There's two kinds. The shofar, which was a horn, and the silver trumpet, which was most often used around the temple. I would lean toward the silver trumpets, which aren't like the trumpets we have today, but, but similar. And, uh, but, but maybe I'll let you know next time we get together. But indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers Whereas one, to make one sound to be heard in the praising and thanking 
the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice and the trumpets and the cymbals and the instruments of music and praised the Lord saying, He is good, His mercy endures forever. You've heard that phrase before, right? He is good, His mercy endures forever. Or the phrase, His everlasting love. It's all the same word. Chesed. His chesed. It's His loyal, unbreakable love. Closest thing in the Greek would be the word agapeo. His chesed. His his this incredible love with which He loved us. <clears throat> so they're singing and they're praising and they're thanking God and they're praising God. See it. They've offered all these sacrifices. They're blowing the trumpets. And the Bible says it was like one voice. Just everybody together, this, this beautiful moment. And look what it says. It says that the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. The cloud was so thick, the priest could not continue to minister. Look what it says. The priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory, the kabod, the weight of the Lord filled the house of God. Kabod is one of two words we use for glory. One is Shekinah, or the Shekinah, and the other is Kabod. Shekinah means to, to shine forth. It's like a picture of, of light. And Kabod means to give something weight. To give weight to something. And those two words used here... It's the kabod, the glory of God, comes into the temple so thick, the, the, the smoke, that the priests all have to run outside. So the people who are watching outside, all of Israel is gathered, all around the courts, as close as they could get. And what do they see? This incredible smoke coming out of the, of the temple, the priests coming out, the praises of God being offered up as the glory of God comes in. What did it look like? Guys, it looked exactly like it did when Moses came to the Lord on Mount Sinai. And the Bible says the cloud descended on the mountain and there was thunder and lightning and this thick cloud settling. And a voice spoke from Mount Sinai and told the children of Israel the Ten Commandments. Same thing, now in the temple. The priests around, the people glorifying the Lord. You know, I've heard people say things before. Like, I don't understand this concept of, of worship and, and glory. And for, why does God always want glory? It seems like it's a, a little egotistical. Well, maybe unless you're the most supremely good, majestic thing in all of creation, then it's not egotistical, it's what? true what did Jesus say I'm the way the what and the life I am the truth then it's not egotistical it's just let me introduce you to the single most greatest for lack of a better word thing that you could ever be around that's God That's His glory, that's His majesty, that's His dominion, that's His power, that's His beauty. So the glory of God comes in. Look at chapter 6. And Solomon spoke, 
The Lord said He would dwell in a dark cloud, and I have surely built you an exalted house, and a place for you to dwell in forever. And the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who has fulfilled with His hands what He spoke with His mouth to my father David. So, the praise that comes from Solomon, as he begins to enter into a a prayer of dedication for the temple, erupts out of how God has kept His promises. Out of God's promises. It's the value He had in the promises of God that outweighed the value at this time in Solomon's life He had for anything else. It outweighed the value of the gold because they used a lot of it, right? It outweighed the value of the silver. You know what they did with the silver? The silver was the footing. I mean, when you make a building and you pour a footing, that's just concrete. When they did a footing, when they were establishing, putting in posts, setting things up, they did it in silver. Silver throughout Scripture speaks of redemption. The 30 pieces of silver paid for the body of Christ, right? Betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Well, anyways, they used all these valuables. Why? Because they valued more the promises of God. What were the promises of God? Not only will I bring you into this land, but I'm going to bring to you a deliverer who will deliver you from the power of sin. He's going to deliver you from that thing you've never been able to get free of. He's going to deliver you from the things that are holding you back. He is going to be the seed of a woman. And the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the enemy, the serpent, and destroy the power of Satan in your life. Um, By the way, that's Genesis chapter 3. The promise. They put more value in the promise than in anything else. We look back to that promise, but we look forward to a new one. Do you know the new one that we look forward to? I don't know about you guys. I'll tell you the one I look forward to. The one I look forward to is when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. To bring you unto myself, that where I am, there you will be also. Jesus said, he's coming back. Revelation tells the story of his return. That day will come. Paul said, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have fought the good fight and laid up for me is the crown of righteousness, but not for me only, but to all who have loved His appearing. Catch the phrase? didn't say who believed in. He said all who loved His appearing. A lot of things I look forward to in life, but there's one thing in particular, seeing Jesus. I want to see Him. I want to look in his eyes. I am both 
full of fear and trepidation and excitement and and I don't even know another word for it when I consider that moment when I see him. Fear and trepidation because I am a broken, messed up, tweaked vessel who has not ever done everything the way they ought to. And Jesus knows it. Giddiness and excitement and, and uh, I don't know, just this unbridled desire because... I read a story about the same thing happening. I read a story about the same thing happening. A a person who was before Jesus, knowing He was Almighty God and had the right to judge. And gathered around this person were perhaps a hundred other people that knew they had the right to judge. This person's guilty. Stones in their hands, ready to stone them. The Bible says... Jesus knelt down on the ground and he graffe. Graffe, he wrote something in the dirt. Nobody knows what he wrote. But the Bible tells us what happened. The guys around said, Teacher, are you listening? This woman's caught in the act of adultery. She's guilty. The law says stoner. What do you say? Let he who is without sin... Cast the first stone. Do you remember the rest of the story? From the oldest to the youngest, they disappear. How come? I don't know. I'm, I'm not the oldest yet. John still got me beat. But the older you are, I think the more guilty you know you were. But from the oldest to the youngest, they left. So what happened? Don't forget the last part. It's the best part. They all left, and who was left with her? Jesus. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. He could still pick up her stone, couldn't he? She's guilty. Oh, man, but... Well, that's not what he did. Did she know she was guilty? Sure. She looked up at him and said, You alone are left. He said to her, Woman, where are your accusers? She said, You alone are left. The true and righteous judge of all the universe. Oh, man. And she said, Go. He said to her, Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you neither do i condemn you because of that story i I don't just face that future meeting with christ afraid because of that story he knows me because of that story i'm guilty but i also know the blood of christ has washed me clean Right? And now, today, well, there's power in the name of Jesus, isn't there? So I, I want that. I want that moment. That moment where I look into His eyes and, and prayerfully hear, well done, good and faithful servant, instead of, shoo, 
man, I didn't think you were going to make it, brother. That's what I'm hoping for. That's my desire. Man, I, 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 I can't wait. I'm going to believe that promise, hold to that promise. That's what's going to propel me through time. From here to there. Because I'm going to put more value in that promise than anything I hear somebody say on TV or the latest doomsday report. I don't care about none of that stuff. Jesus. It's all about Him. Fulfilling that that goal, that design that He has. He said, I... I bless the Lord God of Israel because of the promises He kept. Since the day I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe in Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. Nor did I choose any man to be a ruler over my people Israel. But I have chosen Jerusalem. That my name will be there. And I have chosen David to be king over my people. So what's God choose? The city of peace as his city. I don't care what the UN says. Jerusalem don't belong to nobody but God. God says who stays and who goes. Don't care. They have no say. None. God said David will be my king. What was unique about David? We all know, right? He was a man of undivided heart. He was wholeheartedly after the Lord. In fact, God said he's a man, what? After my own heart. Focused. Completely devoted. In love with. Everything that God was doing. I have chosen Jerusalem. By the way, Jerusalem was not in any tribe. It's like Washington, D.C., It didn't belong to any of the tribes. God didn't pick a a city in the midst of some other tribe. He picked Jerusalem. It wasn't in the inheritance. The Jebusites, that didn't belong to Israel until David took it from the Jebusites. So Jerusalem is outside. He said that my name would be there. Anytime you see that phrase, my name, or for the glory of His name, or, or all of those things, please understand that the name of God speaks of His nature and character. Not what we call Him. We call Him, we don't even know, honestly, I and mean, if we're honest, we don't know what to call Him. You can't pronounce His name. How do you pronounce Y-H-W-H? Well, when we say Yahweh, I, I don't know if that's right or, or not. W and V are the same letter in, in Hebrew. It could be Yehovah. We don't know. When he says the name of God, I want to have a place to put my name. I want to have a place to put my character, my nature. Don't you realize that in all the world, Jesus could have went anywhere. Where was he born? Israel. Where did he die? Jerusalem. Where was he rejected? Jerusalem. What is that place most well known for today? Jesus. There's one place I'm going to put my name. 
in one place. I'm going to put my nature, I'm going to put my character one place that I will choose. Where is the future site of the return of the real king? Jerusalem. He's going to sit on the throne of David. Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem and rule the world. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Doesn't the Bible declare that? Every, everywhere. Just a little further. Now it was in the heart of my father David, to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well in that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you will not build the temple, but your son, who will come from your body, he will build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word that he thus spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised And I have built the temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have put the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord which He made with the children of Israel. Then Solomon stands. But you've got to wait for that part. It only gets better. It only gets better. So... The place is ready. The ark's inside. Solomon is ready to begin the address. Listen, we repeat verses out of this section of Scripture more than we repeat any others. This next section that's coming up, you know, if my people... Yeah, you say, Jack, you're never going to get that far. Ah, you watch. You watch. The prayer of dedication. The posture of Solomon as he tells, he rehearses to the people all the promises that God has kept to him. And the fulfillment of even more promises. Look, God said the temple would be built and here it is. It's done. And then they see the king, the greatest kingdom of that great nation there in the Middle East with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people gathered around watching the glory of God visibly being seen in the temples. A cloud is, is visible coming through the, the door of the temple. And then in a moment he's going to turn. He's going to kneel. He's going to raise his hands. And he's going to pray and glorify and praise. And every person in Israel is going to say, look how much our king loves the Lord. That's the same example we're to be, right? The church. The people see that heart in us. What is it that Jesus said? They'll know you're my disciples by... Your love, how you love each other, how you love me. Jesus, when he was asked, Lord, what must I do to to be saved? Jesus said, well, you know what it says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see law? The law is fulfilled in this simple phrase. 
love God, love people. You can't get it the other way. It will never work to love people and then love God. It is through the love of God that the love of God enters into your life that you might love people. That's the way it happens. Don't Solomon start so good? We we haven't even seen him at his best. That's in the next several verses. Uh, Solomon at his best, at the peak, when he's in love with God and God's in love with him. But the time's going to come when he's going to become busy building a nation. He's going to do a lot of good things, but he's going to leave something behind. He's going to replace it with gold. He's going to replace it with wives. He's going to replace it with stuff. Horses. Is it any wonder when Jesus came that he said, if you want to be my disciple, you got to let it all go. You got to renounce it all. You must forsake all to be my disciple. He tells a story in Matthew. I shared it with you guys not that long ago. I think when when he said a, a man was having a wedding feast and he and he told the people who had been invited, the, the feast is ready, come, come to the feast. And the people who were invited came to him one by one and said, you know, I just got a new piece of property. I need to go check it out. Can I be excused? I just got a new team of oxen. I, I, I think I need to be excused. The third person said, I just got married. I don't have time. I need to be excused. Folks, it's the same three things. The same stuff that turned Solomon's heart. It's the same stuff that stopped those guys from coming to the feast. It's the same thing that Jesus said, let go of it all. Nothing in this world will satisfy you. Nothing here will satisfy. You may get a day, a week, maybe you get a year. But sooner or later, you don't want it no more. Sooner or later, it doesn't have value to you. Sooner or later, because it won't satisfy, it won't fill an infinite space in your soul that only one thing can fill. So Jesus said, let it go. Let the gold go. Let your closest relationships, let them go. Don't cling to those and ignore the Lord. Don't cling to your stuff. The rich young ruler, Jesus said, take all your goods, sell it all, give it to the poor, come and follow me. How did he go away? Sorrowful, why? He had so much stuff. So much stuff. Next chapter, Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. He climbed up in a tree, remember? Sycamore tree. Everybody remembers the song, right, from Sunday school? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Wee little man was he. You guys never sang that? I'm going to teach you it if you don't start looking at me like you know what I'm talking about. And so then, 
Jesus comes to him. The, uh, last thing, I promise. Jesus comes to him and he says, Zacchaeus, I'm, I'm just going to come to your house. I, I, I wanna, I'm going to come meet with you. That's it. That's it. Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house and he sits there and they eat. And what happened? What happened to Zacchaeus? You read it. See where Jesus told Zacchaeus, get rid of all your stuff. He didn't have to. Why? Because at that meal, Zacchaeus fell in love with Jesus. And when he fell in love with Jesus, all that stuff didn't matter anymore. And so what do you hear him saying? Anybody I ever robbed, I'm going to pay back four times. If I took stuff from you I shouldn't have took, I'm going to give it back. By the time he's done making all the promises of what he's going to do with his wealth, there's nothing left. You know what Jesus said? Today, salvation has come to the house of Zacchaeus. Because he did all that? No, why? Because he loved God. He loved God. The stuff didn't hold back. He let it all go. That's still what God wants today. Same thing He wanted then.